Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Greg Peterson here, and welcome to the 303rd episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where three days a week we work together educating and inspiring you to become part of your food revolution. Growing plants that thrive in your yard is a lot easier than you think. It starts with saving your own seeds and letting them remember what they already learned. Just text SEEDS to 33444 or visit IWANTTOSAVESEEDS.COM and you will receive our free webinar about why seeds matter, why saving them is easy, and how you can save your own. Today on our podcast, we have someone who is helping bridge solutions in the food movement. We're talking to Roger Wasson about Farm to Table Matters. Roger is a graduate of Illinois State University and a food and agricultural veteran. He comes from a family with five generations of American farming in their blood. And although he was the first to leave their central Illinois grain and livestock farm, he continually works for and with farmers throughout America and around the world. He has managed state, national, and international councils and boards for agriculture industries covering over a dozen commodities. Roger is presently building a consulting firm, Idea Farming, and his Farm to Table Talk podcasts have been created for anyone interested in their individual journey within the food movement, the modern food system, and the stories behind our every bite. Welcome to the show today, Roger. Are you ready to rock? You bet. I'm excited to be with you today, Greg. Sweet. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? Sure, I'm happy to. I, you know, I grew up on a farm in central Illinois, just outside of Peoria. We had everybody back there that farmed. You had corn, soybeans, but you rotated too. You had oats and alfalfa. Everybody had livestock. And the main reason that they grew any plants at all was always to just feed the livestock. That's what every farmer did. Mm-hmm. And that's changed a great deal. But I went to Illinois State University. And when I graduated, my wife, I got married in college, and she still had a year left. We were going to stay in Bloomington Normal. And I got a job at the radio station. 
station doing sales, and then a farm show opened, and I said, I can do that. So I had two hours a day in addition to doing sales at, what, 22 years old. So I had a noon show, and then I had a morning show, and then I got recruited to take over a couple of TV programs that was going to be food and agriculture. And I got in a disagreement with the management, and I thought, well, I don't need this, but what I really enjoy is working with and for farmers. I didn't know I was going to do that, but when I was doing the farm show, I'd get letters from somebody that said, you know, my son raises hogs south of Bloomington, and I'm really proud of your talking about agriculture. And I thought, this is what I want to do. I don't want to make money. I want to be able to help tell the story of agriculture. So I wrote hundreds of letters all over the United States trying to be sure that I could get involved with communicating about agriculture. And I got invited to Denver, and they put me in charge of a sheep industry development program. Didn't know much about it, but I had to organize land-grant universities specialists all over the United States on helping people get into raising sheep. And then I got recruited by one of my board members to go to Indiana and run a cattlemen's association and help them with a merger. And then I got recruited to be the head of marketing for the National Pork Producers Council in Des Moines, Iowa, where we started talking about how we could improve hogs. We tied promotion to the improvement of hogs that were less fat. And it was the beginning of Pork the Other White Meat. And I was in charge of running that program. And then I got recruited from that program at 31 to become the CEO of the American sheep industry. And I worked on mergers. We had a checkoff program. We had the American Wool Council, American Lamb Council. We had merchandising staff. You know, again, in my early early 30s, I was a CEO and working in every state. And then also we started doing some national programs and brought about a merger. And then I left to start my own company of marketing consulting and market development. I did like the strategic plan for the American bison industry. You'd think that Buffalo would have had a strategic plan probably a couple hundred years before, but things like that that I got involved with. A search firm contacted me and said, would you come out and talk to us about becoming the CEO of the Almond Board? And so we did. So we moved to California and they were suing each other. There were all sorts of battles going on. I thought this is just great to be in the middle of it. So I took that job and in the process, we were sued for being unconstitutional because it was a mandatory checkoff program that took funds out of growers' checks to be able to Mm -hmm. use for promotion. Somebody didn't like it, went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. We won. But before that happened, it made us shut down our marketing for a while, and I focused on research. And we were able to help, I think, change the image of almonds and make it healthy because when we started, people were told, don't ever eat almonds. They're terrible for you. And when we were through, it was totally the other way around. And I think our program made a difference. And then did a stint, I was recruited to be the head of the strawberry industry and moved to the coast. And I thought, wait a minute, I like it here. I don't want to leave. We're right on Monterey Bay. We do consulting. We work with tomato industry and others right now and do a market development and consulting and started the Farm to Table Talk podcast. Wow. That was a long story, Greg. Actually, you compressed it really nicely. That was over decades, right? Yep. So you've seen a lot happen over the years. I have, and there's things that I've really liked is seeing come together and work together for their common good. Mm -hmm. And that's what's always inspired me. Yeah. People that farm 
and I think it, it looks like it includes people that you're working with, whether you're farming in the city in your own backyard or on rooftops, or you've got a place in the country. There's a certain spirit and attitude that I always admired, and that they were willing to put their industry, their their interests, you know, how they can help other people, their generosity that you don't necessarily see everywhere in society. Mm-hmm. There's something else that drives them other than just trying to get the last penny that they can squeeze out of anything they do. And I like that. I mean, when I started working with farmers right off the bat, even back uh, right after college and I was a farm director, I'd have people say, hey, come on in, have supper with us, you know, have dinner with us. And dinner is always in the middle of the day. It's not in the evening. But, you know, just come and break bread with us. And the generosity and the the willingness to do something for the benefit of others and not take a selfish perspective, I've always loved that. And yeah. to me, maybe it exists in other industries, but I've never seen it like I see it with people that are attached to growing animals or growing plants. Well, that's what happens when people get around food. We get real happy and community-oriented. I think so, too. I mean, when I grew up on a farm, we had a community club. Yep. And once a month, there would be a potluck at the local junior high school, and people would come in. The kids, like I remember when I was a kid, we'd play basketball and get all hot and sweaty, and parents would sit around and chat. You know, it happened every single, every single month yeah. that you would do that in the community. So I have a food story to tell about us. Roger and I just recently met. I attended the podcasting conference that happened in Anaheim in August. There was this party going on and I sat down at a table kind of right in the middle of the patio where the party was happening and there were six seats there and only me sitting there and I started shouting out to people and say, hey, join me. And the first person I shouted out to was Roger. And as Roger was sitting down, he said, I kid you not. He said to me, I run the Farm to Table Talk podcast. Now, there was 1,500 people at this event. Who would have thunk that we would meet first thing? And that was just an outrageous happenstance, I have to say. And we became fast friends. We are. And, and you know what happened after we sat down and started talking? You waved at like three other people, and they were equally surprising and fun and interesting and serendipitous. So say, oh, And in fact, one came up, and she had worked with my son, who's a partner in our business, Idea Farming, and she's a registered dietitian who was starting a podcast. Yep. And I had no idea that's who it was. And so we started talking, and she was already, again, working with my son. And what there were 1,500 people milling around. Right. Exactly. What's the chances of that of that happening? Yeah. I think, Greg, it takes a personality like you have to reach out and be open and looking for those connections. And it's one of those things if you look, you find it. Like always. Looking for community, baby. Yeah. So tell us about your farm to table talk podcast. Well, again, like I said, I've been doing communications over the years. One of the projects I took on about three or four years ago, I started helping a PR agency with developing something called the Food Dialogues, U.S. Farmers and Ranchers Alliance. And I said, I would help if I could help bring the diversity of voices to the table. So I worked on that and I did it for a few years. I was helping them and all of our other projects are going on. But I started thinking that, you know, there are more conversations that just aren't taking place and I want to facilitate 
facilitate those. There's a lot of things that are interesting and a lot of people that are passionate about their journey. I think it's interesting and I think maybe some others will think it's interesting as well. I figured out that I could do what I started to do years and years ago, decades ago, and be your own radio station with a podcast. And so I went out, got the microphones and got some of the equipment that it takes to edit my own podcast and recording and started recording people and put it up in the cloud, get it listed on iTunes and you're off to the races. Nice. And I've been doing a podcast every week for the last couple of years. And it's going going really well. And I'm always surprised the feedback I get and people that are listening. You know, some podcasts don't register with everybody, but then something will. And they'll think, that really spoke to me. And I look down through them right now, and I look at the last 120 podcasts I've had. And they're all friends. I look back and look at the list, and it's like going in the library where you got your favorite books on the shelf. And they think, ah, yeah, I remember that. I remember that idea. Mm-hmm. So it's good, and that's the reason I started doing it, that these are conversations that I think are interesting. So I hope somebody else will. We share them as a podcast. Yay. So give me an idea of some of the people that you've had on your podcast. Well, I've had the founder of Civil Eats and the founder of Food Tank and other organizations, Roots of Change, people that are involved in various elements of movements. I've had people that have developed are working with the Congo and helping farmers in the Congo learn how to do a better job of producing cocoa beans. I've had people that are helping women advance and get uh, more involved in making higher incomes Mm -hmm. around the world. I've had people on both sides of all the different controversies, more than I even want to talk about sometimes about. GMO, whether it should be and not. But all of these end up having an element of some personal journey Mm -hmm. that you get a glimpse of somebody's passion of what they're really interested in. I've had quite a few people that have been living a rat race, you know, and they, they decided that they wanted to pull back. I'm really intrigued by that because I think there's a stage in our life maybe and a stage in society where you just need to, let's maximize. I got to make as much money as I can. I got to rise up as high as I can up the ladder or the corner office or wherever you think that is. And I'm struck by how many people reach a stage where they say, well, this isn't all it's cracked up to be. Maybe they reach the corner office and say, you know, and in my case, for what I thought I was aspiring to, I reached the corner office pretty early. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, that's fine. It's good that you can do some other things, but there's other things that drive you and motivate you. That's what I see. There's a certain passion around food, like you mentioned earlier, whether you're growing animals or plants, there's a passion around that. And that's unique. But there's also people that sometimes are substituting, they're putting themselves into that instead of saying, I've got to, again, rise up the ladder and achieve this and achieve that and so forth. Yeah, I think a big piece of it is following our hearts. It is. It is. I found a book. I went to some class. It was a self-improvement program, and it was giving you advice on how to be happy and make your life work, all those things that self-improvement books and courses tell you. So they sold a book to me, and it looked like at that time, I think it was like in my mid-20s or something, I had made the list of 10 things I wanted to accomplish with my life. And I kid you not, when I found this, I hadn't looked at it for over 20 years, and I found this little note that was stuck in the book, and one of the things on the list said, eat at a lot of great restaurants. <laughs> the very next item on my list was lose 30 pounds. <laughs> 
<laughs> and I thought, oh, they didn't even the irony of that didn't even strike me. I think when I was putting my list together. Yeah, exactly. But a lot of the other things I could have checked off the list. But again, I think that's one of the things I find the most intriguing about this big broad umbrella that we might call the food movement is that there is a love and passion and really a philosophy about life mm-hmm. that gets expressed in the way people pour themselves into growing, producing food, and it extends way beyond their garden or their farm, I think, into an attitude about life that I find very appealing. Yeah, absolutely. So in thinking over your last 200 episodes, is there one that just is striking to you that totally moved you? Well, the one that's on my mind right now was one with Gus Schumacher. And the reason it's so much on my mind right now is that Gus just passed away this last weekend. He was 77 and had an unexpected heart attack. I don't know if heart attacks are ever expected, but he he just died suddenly and had seemed to be in pretty good health. But Gus, five-generation farmer in Massachusetts, he became commissioner of agriculture there. He became one of the assistant secretaries in the Clinton administration of the USDA, got involved in so many things, but he was a real pioneer in promoting farmers markets, but beyond just farmers markets, and he was on the board of the National Farmers Market Coalition. He also envisioned ways that you could use what were called food stamps at farmers markets, and also encouraged organizations to make it even more available for people that could be able to go and purchase fruits and vegetables at farmers markets. He created White Wave. He did so many things that both the establishment of smaller organic local farms and CSAs and farmers markets, but really extending healthy eating to lots of people that might otherwise felt that they couldn't have afforded it. Right. And just a tremendous guy. What an outstanding life. And I have a podcast with him featured on my website that was an interview that he goes through all these stories and how excited he was still getting into his 70s. He was getting so excited about extending the benefit of getting more people into producing their food and making it more available for people. So it's not just some elitist thing that you live in a rich suburb somewhere and go to the farmer's market and spend $5 for an heirloom tomato. Right. You know, he really bridged the gap and showed a way that both farmers and the communities could benefit. And right now, he's the one that I find inspiring. But I find something inspiring about almost every single one of them. You know, that's the cool thing. It happens that way with me, too. And I'm always looking for those cool nuggets that people have to share, because it's really in sharing our stories that we can make a biggest difference in the world, don't you think? Oh, I do. I do. I mean, you were making community when you waved at me when we bumped into each other at that podcast convention. And I find that you can create community half a dozen times a day. You know, mm-hmm. I find that if you've got the right attitude, you know, I'm, I'm sure you're that kind of person. It wasn't just the time that we met that sometimes the best encounter you have in months might be an exchange with a waitress when you're getting a coffee someplace in a strange restaurant. Or yeah somebody you bump into and you make a casual conversation in the checkout line to the supermarket and you may not see them again for the rest of your life but that was a really good quality and you had an exchange and something was interesting and they touched your life and you touched theirs and it was worthwhile that's a powerful powerful statement thank you for that so i'm going to shift on you and i'd like for you to talk about a time you failed how you overcame that failure and what you might have learned from it I've been fortunate in the long run. I've been able to hang in there and succeed. But I think back into a career where I had one of my leaders that was an elected leader was getting pressure to get pushed out of representing the industry in something. And I think I failed to help rescue him. You know, he ended up getting kind of 
pushed out of something and felt bad about it because he wasn't able to represent the industry in an international event. And he was a tremendous person. And I still find myself thinking back on that because I've been political. You need to be political when you're working in associations. And I think, is there something more I could have done? Because he was one of those people who went back to the farm after he had been in a leadership role and felt, I think, disappointed, maybe felt like he had failed. Mm-hmm. to contribute in some way. And I look back at that, and I think that I wish I could have done more to help him. And the flip on that, the flip of that coin, is that many of the experiences I feel the best about have when I've been able to help somebody, providing some shadow leadership on my part, right, and help them make an influence on their whole industry. I would have a farmer or a rancher come to these associations and councils and boards I'd be involved with, and we go sit down and have a cup of coffee when they're getting started and say, mm-hmm. what difference do you really want to make? What would you like to see when you go home from having been in this voluntary position? What mark would you like to have had on this on the, on the progress for your industry or for your association. And then I would dedicate myself to working behind the scenes to help them accomplish that. Mm-hmm. That's always been one of the most rewarding things I've ever done. So your learning from that was? Well, I think the learning almost always is perseverance. I mean, I think that you know when you identify what's the high road, you figure out where you want to go. It takes a lot of work. I mean, you make those extra phone calls. You make those extra trips. You get up at 4 o'clock in the morning to help put together an outline. You look at the logjam of opinion. It's not some mark of genius. I mean, it's hard work. Mm-hmm. It's, you have to invest time and energy and, like I say, perseverance. People say grit now. You know, just grind it out that you're going to not ever give up. You're going to keep working with them and trying to create the opportunities to turn it around. I always feel like there's just something more you could do. It's not quite ever finished. You just have to keep working at it. So what do you consider your biggest success? I would say that they are actions like that, that I can look back at people that were elected to be the chairman or the president of association organizations and help them accomplish uh, mergers, consolidations. Mm -hmm. We've passed referendums. We've won cases in the Supreme Court. I'm particularly proud of work with the almond industry because when I went to work for the almond industry, I think one of the reasons they hired me is that there were such intense battles within the state of California. They felt like they needed to hire somebody outside of California. Mm, yeah. You know, I came in as a fresh face and I ended up finding that organization, there had even been a fist fight at one of the meetings, and there were lawsuits, and I'd have lawyers come to my administrative committee meeting taking notes that they could sue us. So, you know, that was a pretty hostile environment, and we got through it. I mean, we had people stand up, and then we had a referendum to say, can this program continue, and almost lost it, but we ended up turning it around and getting broad support from all of the growers that they wanted to continue and increase it. But in the meantime, we had to be very, very resourceful. And like I mentioned, when I started with almonds, there were 300 million pounds of almonds produced. And you can't really grow them anywhere but California in uh-huh. the United States. They grow where there's a Mediterranean climate. We had 300 million pounds, and per tap consumption was low. We did surveys of cardiologists that said that they would tell their patients to not eat almonds because they're bad for you. And we started funding nutrition research that just absolutely flipped it 180 degrees. Mm-hmm. And this would never have happened if it weren't for the growers. This was not some big company that said that, oh, we need to do this and this and this. The growers invested in 
nutrition research. And I had to start recruiting some people to help me on that and researchers and going to universities. And we started turning it around and getting the news different than it is. We worked with, um, it's called FINCI now, the Food Nutrition Conference coming up in Chicago. 17,000 dietitians attend. We started going there all the time and telling them the story. And today, almond consumption's increased almost 10 times. And it started with changing the image, but it was based on good science, not Mm -hmm. just propaganda. It was science to show what almonds part was in the diet. I'm really proud of that. There's been smaller elements in other industries and organizations, but it's usually been overcoming some obstacle that you couldn't tackle on your own. You as an individual couldn't necessarily just say, okay, well, I'm going to change the image of whatever product I'm growing. You needed to work with others and they needed to work unselfishly for the good of the big picture, not just increasing the slice of the pie, but increasing the size of the pie. Yeah. There's that community piece again. So what drives you? I think that what drives me is to make a difference and to make a contribution and that feel good about contributing something or helping an industry or a group to get to another level. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel good about it. I also feel driven, I think, to, you know, it's primarily it's make a difference. Perfect. So if you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? I I knew you were going to ask that, and I have to already tell you that I'm going to fail this in one regard, and that is I think that there's a couple I need to mention in that. I really feel like what you need, whether it's a book or a podcast or a movie, kind of changes of what stage of your life you're in. Absolutely. And so one of the first books that haunted me was Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. And I was in college when that came out and having to read it first, somebody made me read it, but I really was struck by it. And I find that that was the beginning of a lot of people's commitments to sustainability and environmental issues at that stage. And then when I was around 30, I went to the self-help conference and I bumped into this author. Actually, one of the teachers was an author of a book called Stages of a Man's Life or The Seasons of a Man's Life, which was about a man's life, but is actually from a book called Passages, I think, originally that was even more applicable to women. Right. But they did feel like the stages and the and were a little different times for women than men. It was at least a theory. But anyway, I got to talk to him, and that was that made me think about it. Okay, you look at life differently. You need different information when you're 30 than when you're 40 than when you're 50, when you're 60, when you're when you're 70. There's all these different stages. And then now I'll get to the other answer. The one that's probably the I like the most is reading Emerson. Uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, journals and essays both. But when you look through his, his journals, his diaries, his entries, he, did, he was writing something down off and on from his 20s until late in life. Mm-hmm. You can just open the book anywhere and you see a man in the 1840s that was at a different stages in life and he had a different perspective. I find I like reading Emerson when he's in his 40s rather than earlier or later for some reason. I don't know if it applies to everybody. There you go. And I think if I could be anywhere, it would have been to be in the 1840s in that part of Massachusetts. Love to be walking along a country road with Emerson and his friend Henry David Thoreau. And they were funny. I mean, I just thought of this the other day. It'd be great if they could do a podcast. <laughs> no kidding. 
But in the 1840s, that antebellum period, I've gone back and read where they were concerned about large-scale farming and about farmers are being pushed out and the opportunity for farming were having to leave Massachusetts because there's too many people. This was 1840. Wow. So, so many of the things we're going through today are not that much different, especially, I think, the people that are following good practices and farming practices. You don't have to have a $400,000 tractor or combine to farm today, but to find lessons at these stages in history of people that have walked through life facing similar issues that we have, and you can learn from that by going back. And like I say, it's probably Emerson in the 1840s. Sweet. So what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? Well, I have always felt that it was step up. When you see those opportunities where you need to kind of step up and take a position, make a comment, help an issue, it's time to step forward. I've talked to other people that have a different point of view on that. Uh Uh-huh. You know, when you get to a situation where you've got kind of a knot in your stomach or you're thinking, oh, my gosh, I've had some people tell me that they think that's a sign that you just better listen to yourself and not move forward. It's a time for reflecting or pulling back because you should listen to yourself Mm -hmm. and your yourself is telling you to slow down. I lean the opposite direction. It's kind of like you might have felt when you were sitting at that table, waving at people coming in the door, trying to fill out a table. And I was the first one that said, yes, most people wouldn't have done that, Greg. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Most people would have felt like they were going to look silly, that they were going to feel very uncomfortable or face rejection. You were at that threshold and you pushed ahead. I tend to be of that school. Mm -hmm. I promote that school. I'm sure it may not be right for everybody, but I think it's often the right course of action. Excellent. I say bring on the silly. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Roger. Hey, Greg, I've enjoyed it. Thank you. So how can our listeners get a hold of you? Well, I think the best thing is to check us out at farmtotabletalk.com. And you can find our podcasts all over the place. But if you go to that website, they're all on there. Mm-hmm. It's got some descriptions, some other stuff. Check us out on farmtotabletalk.com. Perfect. I'm going to put you on the spot here, too. I want you to give me 30 seconds on why people should listen to your podcast. Well, I think that people should listen to the podcast if they are curious about our food and how it's grown and what are the stories behind the food. I don't go to anywhere where I eat and pick up a plate of food that I don't think about the farm and the farming practices of everything on the plate. Mm -hmm. I try to look at it that I've seen that product grown. I know where it came from. I know how it's grown. People hearing me say this say, well, it's easy for you. You've been around and you're getting old. So you've seen all this stuff already. But I think everybody can be curious. I think it's our our right to know. I don't believe that all food is similar. I think food is produced differently in different countries sometimes, I think in different kind of farming systems. And I encourage people to be about that sort of thing. And so this is the kind of thing that they're interested in. They should check us out on Farm to Table Talk. Perfect. You can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash farm to table talk. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. Growing plants that thrive in your yard is a lot easier than you think. It starts with saving your own seeds and letting them remember what they already learned. Just text seeds to 33444 or visit IWantToSaveSeeds.com and you will receive our free webinar about why seeds matter, why saving them is easy, and how you can save your own. 
We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free.